Hello, this is Kevin Richard. The Idaho legislature returned to session on Tuesday after an 18-day recess that was caused by a coronavirus outbreak at the State House. Lawmakers are continuing a session that has been defined by the pandemic and also defined by a debate over legislative powers and executive powers during an emergency. But one of the prevailing themes of the 2021 session goes to questions of equity. To explore that further, I sit down with Melissa Davlin, the host of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television. Melissa, thank you for joining me here this week. So I have kind of a saying that I use around here once in a while when we talk about uh, coverage plans. And I say that in education, we, we can't write equity stories. We have to write equity into just about every story that we do. And that really feels like where we are in this legislative session and in this stage a year into the pandemic. It feels like equity is something we have to write into just about every story we cover, whether it's education or healthcare, which is a specialty of yours. Absolutely. The pandemic didn't invent these equity issues. It didn't cause these equity issues that we're seeing in healthcare and education and in the economy, but it's certainly highlighting them. It's exacerbating already existing equity issues that we see in our society. Um, and, And we're seeing that in all of these different areas in society and a lot of them intersect and so you know as as you know and as we've talked about before you can't talk about public health in a silo you can't talk about education in a silo so many of these issues are related to one another and i think that we're going to start seeing a lot of overlap in these inequity issues um, you know, people who had troubles with distance learning are also more likely to be affected by some of the public health issues that we've been seeing. And um, there, there's a lot to take a look at as journalists who are who are covering these issues. And it seems like in the healthcare space, it began right away with uh, access to testing at uh, the early stage of the pandemic. And it's continued even with access to to vaccinations at this stage of the pandemic. Right. Absolutely. We're seeing disparities in vaccine distribution since the beginning. On the coronavirus website, the Department of Health and Welfare has done a really great job with publishing this data. You can look up county by county what percentage of the population is vaccinated. Um, from the beginning, there were disparities, and in some cases, it was a little bit hard to tell why those disparities existed, um, especially when there was there were only so many parts of the population who could get vaccinated. And so were there more nursing home facilities in Blaine County, which automatically had a, a much bigger percentage of their population vaccinated than places like Lincoln County, just to the south, or uh, Owyhee County. Um, Now that it has been opened up to more of the general population, those disparities are becoming even more pronounced in Blaine County. And I don't want to get too much into numbers because it's kind of hard to uh, communicate that in the podcast, but in Blaine County, it's a very wealthy county, highest life expectancy in the state, a bunch of other indicators that show that, you know, they're in good shape in Blaine County. More than half the population has had at least one dose of the vaccine. More than a third are fully vaccinated. 
you compare that with Hawaii County, which has a much lower health ex- uh, life expectancy, just 12% of the population has received one dose. Um, and, and we're seeing these indicators all across the state. If there's one indicator that shows that the population there has uh, poor public health access and poor health outcomes, they're much more likely to have a lower percentage of the population who has received one dose of the vaccine. And it seems like part of the struggle in trying to figure out what is happening right now with the vaccine and the vaccine rollout and part of why journalists have been pushing so hard for demographic information, for demographic breakdowns uh, by community is without that, you can't really tell exactly what's happening and why it's happening. I mean, we could be talking about a rural county where you have a slower rollout of the vaccine because of demographic differences. It may be because of uh, politics. It may be because of vaccine hesitancy within a community. It's hard to tell without uh, without detailed data. Right. And, and a lot of times when we're talking about barriers to accessing health care, a lot of times in the media or the public arena, those conversations focus on just one barrier, like language or transportation or proximity to pharmacies or healthcare services or professionals. But the reality is... A lot of people have multiple barriers, and we don't talk enough about those multifaceted complexities, you know. So maybe in uh, Payette County, they'll have a Spanish language clinic, and and that helps one portion of the, you know, population that doesn't speak English as a first or primary language. But there are still going to be people who have trouble getting to that clinic or who work swing shifts and and don't have childcare during those hours. There are so many barriers and it just takes one barrier to make it hard to access that vaccine or get to a pharmacy to get tested in the first place. When you layer on these barriers, it just makes it that much harder to access that healthcare. And you know, when when we talk about this as as reporters, um, one thing that they're really emphasizing in public health information right now is that it's not just that a huge part of the population might be vaccine hesitant. It's that a lot of people are busy and it's not necessarily a priority for them. If you don't make the vaccine access as easy as possible, then some people are going to put it off out of necessity. You know, there people have very, very busy lives. I am incredibly fortunate that I have a flexible work schedule. I have a husband who works from home who can watch the kids so I can run out and get a vaccine if I need to. Not everybody has that. And then we start talking about how that intersects with issues like childcare access and education. And that's where it gets even more complicated about how this pandemic is going to have massive long term effects on equity in our society. And I think it's a great point, and it's kind of where I wanted to go on the education end of this, because I I think the pandemic has really kind of illustrated the equity issues that really have to do largely with just logistics. You know, we've seen thousands of students move from traditional K-12 education to, you know, to virtual learning, whether that's virtual learning being offered by a school district or virtual learning being offered by some of the charter schools. But that's not for every family. That's not for every household. I mean, you've got to have a household where ideally there's, you know, at least one parent who can work from home and can 
can work with the child as they're working through online learning. It doesn't work as well if if that child is home alone. Exactly. And, you know, again, I, I said this before on other programs and in conversations with you. This past year with a seven-year-old second grader who's been doing online school and no child care for either of my kids has been the hardest, most stressful year of my life. And we are incredibly fortunate that I have a flexible work schedule. We're both, both my husband and I are working from home. My son actually academically is doing pretty well in online school. Um, We're fortunate. I don't know how some of these other families are doing it, except that we know that some parents, especially women, are having to leave the workforce to make this work. We know that it's going to take a long time for women to catch back up, economically speaking. We know that there are massive childcare shortages. Um, we know that daycare uh, or uh, day, summer day camps that people rely on for school-age children during the summer, are those slots are filling up fast and a lot of them have been canceled. And so there, there are issues that extend beyond just my kid is having trouble with online school that affect the entire family and the entire community. And I've talked about this with a lot of my friends. I, I feel I feel really bad saying how stressful it's been because it has been so much worse for so many other people who have been laid off or who have been forced out of the workplace. And it, we're going to see repercussions of that for a long time in this country. I was struck on Monday as I was listening to a news conference, a virtual news conference about the early education grant proposal that will come back uh, to the legislature. I was struck listening to a couple of the speakers, uh, Paul Amador, Representative Paul Amador, you know, one of the leading sponsors of the bill, was talking about his own personal experience with, with child care, saying, you know, he had just cut a check uh, for his two kids for child care that exceeded his mortgage in Coeur d'Alene. I mean, that's, you know, and that's crippling for a lot of families. I mean, that's a that's an expense that, you know, leaves families in, in this cycle where you're either working and paying a lot of your take home pay to child care or you're or you're trying to stay home and juggle it some other way. Um, one, of the, one of the other speakers seeing that around the state. Absolutely. Andrew Menser, who is the uh, executive director of the West Central Mountains Economic Development Council, he was talking about what they've been doing in terms of early education or, or early or child care in the McCall area saying, you know, they're trying to expand it. They're trying to do community-based, which has been the mantra as uh, supporters of this early education grant have been talking about, you know, trying to get this going, trying to get local partnerships, local consortiums, was saying that even with what they've been doing in the McCall area, they've got a 400-space deficiency for childcare in the Valley. And that's a crippling economic uh, impact on that Valley. I mean, it's it's families deciding who, who can work and who can't. Well, and, and you know... That's that's what my own family is going through. My I have two kids, one seven year old, one one year old, and just here in Boise, we can find daycares with a toddler opening, but they don't take school age kids. Or we can find a daycare that or a day camp that might take my seven year old, but doesn't have a toddler spot. And so 
it, we made the decision as a family that, okay, this summer I'm going to go to part-time and my mom will be able to watch the kids while I run into the office every once in a while. But I can't, you know, be running across the valley to two different childcare facilities and like Representative Amador be paying more than my mortgage for childcare because you got to factor in quality of life too. You know, (laughs) that at some point I'm going to be working to pay for childcare. And talking to so many of my friends who are in the same situation, I have a feeling we're going to be having a lot of play dates this summer so I can help out some of my mom friends who don't have the flexibility that I do. Um, And it's just, it's a really, really painful spot as a society to be in. Again, I am so fortunate that I can do this. Not everyone can. And, you know, as kind of where we started with this, it's really, it's impossible to separate these issues out and silo them as a family welfare issue versus an education issue. Because when we're talking about something like early education, we're talking about something like kindergarten readiness, these issues bleed together. And and they, they, you know, as we watch this legislature wrap up this session and talk about what are we going to do in terms of uh, trying to deal with the learning loss and trying to deal with the extent of the learning loss. We know we've seen that kind of learning loss. We know we've seen it in the reading scores. You know, we've seen a drop in where K through three students are in terms of, you know, their fall reading scores this year as opposed to the previous year. And, you know, so where do you put money? And, And is it enough just to put money into summer reading programs as Governor Little suggested back in January? Or do you need to do something more holistically as uh, members of JFAC have pushed for and, and tried to put more money into other learning loss areas? I mean, it's it's a really complicated issue. And to not look at the societal aspects of it and look at it simply as an education issue is, is not seeing the whole story. Well, and, and even as we're talking about you know, education and making sure that we're not talking about these issues in a silo, as I was talking about before, when there are multiple barriers and complex barriers to access to healthcare, the same is true for education. You know, there, we've talked a lot about kids over the last year who don't have reliable internet access or children who are on IEPs or whose parents don't speak English fluently. There are children who have multiple barriers in those categories, you know, ESL students with IEPs. Uh, and so, there are, there are additional barriers for some of these families that if you can't just address one at a time. And there's also this intersection with public health. Again, there are a multitude of public health issues that affect education. Housing, for example, we're seeing a housing crisis, not just in Treasure Valley, although it's gotten so much media attention, we're seeing it all over the state. And when kids don't have reliable housing, when their parents are worrying about where they're going to stay next week. Um, You know, you you don't have to be staying in your car to be considered homeless or have unstable housing. You know, there are a lot of families who are being forced to couch surf or who are living in motels or living in RVs. When your parents are focused on that, not only are you not going to necessarily have reliable internet access, but it's really hard to focus on your studies when you have that major life stressor. 
Um, you know, there are also a lot of families who rely on mobile dental health clinics that come to schools or flu vaccine clinics who come to that, that come to schools. If the school isn't open reliably or the public health district is so focused on COVID mitigation efforts and, and for good reason, are those kids getting the basic baseline health care that they would other, otherwise be receiving through the school district? And, you know, that that varies area by area. So this intersection of issues, again, I think we're going to see an overlap between those public health disparities and education disparities with some of these families. I think one of the things that really drove home the educational disparity was what we saw last fall and the debate that we're continuing to see at the Statehouse about trying to give grants to families to cover the cost of learning at home, the cost of online learning. I mean, the overwhelming number of applicants that you saw for the governor's Strong Families, Strong Students grant program. I mean, I I called up the numbers, you know, before we got on on this call. I mean, you had over 26,000 completed applications for a share of that money last fall, and about 18,500 families received money. So there was an unmet need right there. And you have legislation that, uh, you know, we'll watch how it uh, plays out the rest of this legislative session that's designed to extend that program. There's a very controversial element of that because uh, this proposal, this bill would also allow uh, families to use those grant dollars for, for private education. And that's become uh, a, a real source of controversy in the bill. But there's really no disputing the fact that, you know, you've got families who are looking for help. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that need can come in so many ways. And, you know, to your point about how there's an unmet need, I also know a couple of families who did spend a decent number of, of dollars to get their kids set up for online school and decided not to go for the grant because they felt like other families needed it more. And so that that number of applicants isn't even an accurate an accurate measure of what families put in to online learning, you know, and that it doesn't measure how many lost hours of work that parents had and guardians had because suddenly they had to stay home with their kids and and they didn't have any other solution if, you know, childcare closed down or something like that. Um, I'm very interested to see where that legislation goes. There was that, the controversial element, um, but I, I do think that there is an unmet need. I know that the governor um, was very interested in that, um, in that program when it was first introduced without the, without the voucher, the so-called voucher aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just one of the many, many things that I will be watching if that gets wrapped up in the last couple weeks planned of the session. And... You know, one thing we'll watch really closely on this end that I think could really be a big, uh, you know, a big factor in terms of how do schools cope with these equity issues is this this huge influx of federal money that's coming into the schools that has started to come in uh, in the past year with coronavirus aid and with the latest coronavirus stimulus uh, law that's going to be about four hundred million dollars for for public schools and what's so important about that money and what becomes such a big reporting job for us over here is 
that money is being distributed based on poverty. You know, districts that have a higher percentage of Title I students will get a higher share of the money. So in theory, that kind of an allocation of money should be able to address some of these equity issues. But we'll see. I mean, it's a, a, lot, of, a lot of dollars we're going to have to follow. Well, and, and that's just it, is, is we've seen attempts to shore up reading scores in some of these schools before with varying levels of success as you followed over the years. And, you know, how, how do you measure that? We, we know that there are going to be inequities. We know that the reading scores um, are one measure of that. We know that graduation is a long-term measure of that. Are there any other things that the state is going to be able to track that that show that, okay, three years down the road, five years down the road, this money was a good investment. And how how much of that infusion, we know that the governor doesn't want to spend this on ongoing projects. So how much of that infusion is going to help address those already existing inequities that we were talking about? And it all kind of leads to an inequity issue that I've been writing about a lot over the past few years. I'm writing about again this year is inequities in terms of post-secondary pursuit and post-secondary completion. We, we saw the numbers, and it wasn't just that the numbers reflected a decrease in enrollment in higher education. We knew that. We, we knew something like that was going to happen, and actually it turned out to be less of a decrease than we expected in terms of raw numbers. But what we did see that's really concerning is a decrease in in-state enrollment and in a lot of the kind of demographic cohorts that you really want to see improvement in terms of recruiting. You want to see more first-generation students uh, continue their education. You want to see more rural students. You want to see more students of color. The numbers are just not there right now. And, you know, that's, you know, the big question is, is that a blip or is that exacerbating a problem that we already have in terms of post-secondary recruiting? And my my hunch tells me it's it's some of both, but a pretty healthy, you know, pretty healthy share of the latter. That it's it's exacerbating a problem we knew we had all along. Uh, one thing I'm going to be interested to see long term is we've had so much conversation. Uh, as a society about the weight of student debt and how that affects so many people in their 20s and 30s, especially right now. How much of that is influencing the, the decision among high schoolers right now whether or not they want to go to a four-year institution or as opposed to hanging back a little bit, seeing if the economy improves, seeing if the student loan situation improves, if there's any legislation that's passed that maybe addresses the situation. I, I, it has been such a topic at the forefront of conversation among, you know, especially I'm seeing people in their 20s who are talking about how, it, you know, it's going to take a lot of work for them to get out from under the student debt. You add on to that the economic crash that we saw nationwide, you know, pandemic, the health, the health aspect of it aside, how much of that is affecting these teenagers' decision whether or not to go to college right away? It feels like any other year this legislative session would be defined by 
these kind of equity issues, these kind of economic disparity issues. It's been a session that's really been defined by uh, the power struggle between the legislative and executive branches over coronavirus response. And, and that's you know, it's a fascinating issue to watch. But I think long after that, I think these equity issues are, are going to be with us and how how we as a state come out the other side of it is is going to have a lasting effect on, on families and communities uh, for years to come. Well, and, and I completely agree with you. And just one more thought on that. How much of that conversation is going to be politicized moving forward? You know, because as we have talked about equity as a society, a, a lot of that overlaps with this idea of social justice and the fact that some people in society, whether because of their race or ethnicity or socioeconomic background or whatever, have a very different experience as they move through life. How much of that then becomes politicized and then weaponized as opposed to having a real honest conversation about, okay, here are the factors playing in to why there are so many public health disparities and and issues with access to healthcare, issues with access to education and opportunities. Being able to have that honest conversation as opposed to it becoming part of this culture war idea, I think is gonna be critical. And I'm really interested to see how that unfolds. And it's hard to see how issues like Medicaid or early education slash pre-K or higher education will be less political going forward than they are right now. Absolutely, yeah, I'm afraid you're right. On that cheerful note, Melissa, thank you as always for <laughs> sharing your, your thoughts and your expertise and your insights. It's, it's always good talking to you, thank you. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. Again, that was Melissa Davlin, the host of Idaho Reports. You can catch Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television every Friday night at 8 p.m. That's going to take care of it for the podcast this week, and that's going to take care of my week. I'm going to spend a chunk of the weekend in pain. I'm running the virtual version of the race to Roby Creek. Uh, runners know the, the lore of Roby Creek. This is... Uh, a half marathon with about 2,000 miles of uphill and about 2,000 miles of downhill. I'm going to run the, the course as intended, and there's going to be nothing virtual about those hills. I'm pretty sure of that. But I expect to be back uh, as good as new for next week's edition of the podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week.